Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We are located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we want to be a community of faithfully present people with God, self, and others. We hope that this encourages you to do the same wherever you are. And thanks for joining us. All right, Redemption family. So we are going to jump into the book of Acts today. We're jumping back into it, rather. Uh, we began this book about one year ago, I think, to this weekend is when we actually kicked it off. It's going to take us a lot of time to journey through this massive book. It's 28 chapters. It takes us 57 sermons. Today is the 31st sermon through the book as we're looking into the Acts of the Apostles, Acts of the Holy Spirit, and Acts of the Early Church. Over the last three months, we took a break. Uh, we looked at our vision as as we put it before ourselves again, as Redemption Church is striving to be a community of people who are, are, are faithfully present to God, self, and others. From there, we looked into about two months uh, of pulling on the threads of justice and image of God and reconciliation, seeking what does God say from cover to cover in every genre of scripture about these things? And how does he want us to then respond to the world around us? And so now we're going to journey through the book of Acts for a period of time, and we'll take a break around Advent is our plan. So that being said, I don't really know how to summarize the first 30 sermons of the book of Acts, but I can say this. One, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was crucified and resurrected from the grave. And Acts opens with his ascending back to the right hand of the Father. A few days later, he sent the Holy Spirit into the church, and it was accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles. The apostles and other believers began to proclaim Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. And many, many people from all ethnicities began to believe and trust in Jesus as the Savior and live in unity together. And yet the the early church faced both political persecution from the Roman state as well as a ton of religious persecution from the Jewish people. And so therefore they had to scatter out of the city of Jerusalem and many of them went north uh, to places like Syria. And that's where we are today picking up in Acts chapter 13. And so we're beginning what's called Paul's first missionary journey. And if you grew up in church or you know much about it, you know that Paul had three major missionary journeys. But this isn't the first time Paul is on the scene living with the, with the express purpose of proclaiming Jesus and the gospel. Rather, he'd been doing so, but here's where the, it, he's highlighted as being sent out with Barnabas to then travel to other foreign cities and proclaim Jesus and the gospel. So before we jump in, maybe take one second and think back. When did you become a Christian? What was that like? Who was around? Who told you? Who took you under their wing? Who discipled you? Who challenged you? Who held you accountable? What was that like? For me, I have to go back to when I was 15 years old, but I can't stop there. I go back to my parents and my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and on down until we finally find ourselves around Acts chapter 13, where the church was resolved to go out and to make disciples at all costs. So, this is where we begin today. Acts chapter 13. Here's the first four verses. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, 
What's up to Lucius in Laurelhurst? Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, so first, I want to just note that there's prophets and teachers in the church. These aren't all the roles and offices that are filled in the church, but this is who is highlighted here in the city of Antioch. And so they they are gathered and they're doing what Christians do. They worship Jesus, they pray, they fast, and they seek the will of God. And Luke is careful, too, to tell us who does all the talking here. It says, and the Holy Spirit said. You see, the Holy Spirit's not an ambassador for God, a representative of God. The Holy Spirit uh, doesn't just speak for God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit instructs the church. Christ is the head of the church, and the Holy Spirit is found here speaking directly to Christians, instructing, here is the will of God. Here at Redemption, we long to live under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to live? Who do we need to raise up and train and disciple and uh, put into positions of leadership or send out? These are questions we have to consistently ask ourselves as faithful followers of Jesus here in 2020. And so, of the crowd that's gathered in that early church... The Holy Spirit has two people in mind, Paul and Barnabas. We've seen them earlier in the book of Acts. And now the Holy Spirit says, I want them. But what are they going to be? What are they going to do? They're going to be sent out. The church is understood as the people who are sent out, the sent ones, missionaries, sent out. And what are they sent out to do? For the work that I have prepared for them. You see, getting the good news of Jesus and the gospel out and making disciples and planting churches and raising leaders and raising money and writing materials and creating art and all the, all the things that are gonna, that, that lay ahead is a lot of work. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of people. It's not about one trained professional or two trained professionals. It's about the entire body of Christ rallying around for the sake of the gospel. And so here, Paul and Barnabas are being sent out for work. I want to show you a map. We'll pull it up on the screen really quickly just to give you an idea about where Paul is headed. He's headed to the city of Antioch. There's two Antiochs that are mentioned. One is in the country of Syria and one is in the country of Turkey. And so Paul is here in the, in the first Antioch in Syria, uh, and he's about to be sent out. The first journey, as you can see there on the screen, uh, he's going to head down to Cyprus first. And then up to the north to Pamphylia and then to the other Antioch and then around, right? As you can see it there, it's roughly 1500 miles of traveling. Some estimate that's about 53 days worth of work ahead. This is dangerous work to be doing to go around the Roman Empire and proclaim Jesus as Lord and to be moving in and out of cities like this was risky 
work. And it's kind of funny too, to look at the maps. I will pull up one more uh, just to show you the, the remainder of Paul's other missionary journeys, as you can see where he's being launched out again and again. And we'll get into those in the rest of the book of Acts. But as he, as he launches out, he, he takes Jesus's call literally go into all the world, make disciples. Paul goes, okay. He goes basically into all of the known world. He takes that very literally and charges headfirst in obedience to Jesus, his Lord and Savior. Now, Paul is based out of Antioch, and this is a this is a, a strategic place. Uh, it's a place that that serves as a, a middle point between Rome uh, out to the to the west, and then to. Uh, uh, to Jerusalem down to the south. This was a perfect spot for Paul and his team to post up. So they raised up a lot of missionaries here. They were training leaders. They were, they were proclaiming the gospel. They were sending people out. They were sending out church planters. It was a factory that was committed to the mission of God. And so it's a, it's a port city. It's a wealthy city. It's a pagan city. It's a wealthy city. It's a city of great diversity. It's an educated city. It sounds a lot like Seattle. When I look around our city, I think that it's one of the reasons why we moved our family here years ago to plant and go, I want to be a part of, of the work of God. Like what I see here of raising up leaders, of sending people out, of training people, of encouraging people, of making disciples, of being in a place where people are coming and going constantly and going, well, as you go, take the gospel with you. And if you're coming in from some other part of the world, we got good news. Welcome. We have a faithfully present community here that are ready to receive you and welcome you into the family of God. And then even as many people are as moving into Seattle right now, to be mindful that the Seattle freeze, for whatever people believe about the Seattle freeze, I can tell you this, that the church is an amazing apologetic for the gospel in regards to the Seattle freeze. To have a new person move in the city and go, gosh, it's hard to meet people. Gosh, it's hard to make friends. Gosh, it's hard to, you know, connect. The church stands there with the call to be hospitable, with a call to open our lives up to others and welcome them into the family of God. So that's what's going on in Antioch. Verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So if you pause right there and go, wow, okay, so there's a magician there, a false teacher there, someone that does not believe in Jesus and the gospel. He's there and he's a with the proconsul himself. And he, the proconsul, a man of intelligence, a man in power, a, a, a governing official. He's actually interested in hearing about Jesus and the gospel. And he asked Paul and Barnabas, come tell me, tell me about this Jesus you're proclaiming. And the magician wants to get in the way and distract and disrupt and keep, keep the proconsul from hearing and receiving the gospel and believing in Jesus. A couple of points real quick. The gospel is for the 
the down and out and the marginalized, but it's not exclusive to them. It's also available to people who are educated and find themselves in office and in power as well. And that is beautiful that Jesus's gospel is for anybody walking the earth right now. And as we head toward election season, pray, pray, stay mindful that there might be people in office at the local level or the national level that give you the impression they're not interested in Jesus and the gospel, but they could be. They could be. To remember that there is a capital K king on his throne who can do anything. Pray as we're instructed, right? Pray for the emperor. Pray for those in office. And so this, this, the first time Paul set, or oh, the first major missionary journey in Paul sent out on, he's found with incredible opposition. We all know this in Seattle. <laughs> Not everybody's excited to hear about Jesus and the gospel. But Paul's going to persist anyway. He's going to persevere. He's going to keep on going. In fact, God gets involved and says God lays his hand on uh, on uh, this magician and, and strikes him with blindness, right? So it says, but Saul, who's also called Paul, that he had two names, a Hebrew name and a Roman name, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist of darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. All right. Why did Paul persist? Why would he persevere in something like this right here? Why is that so important? Because Paul doesn't believe in universalism. <laughs> that is, Paul doesn't believe that all paths just lead to God and all paths lead to eternal life or heaven or... No, Paul doesn't believe that. Paul believes in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that the only way that we can be reconciled to God is through Jesus himself. Had... Had it been no big deal and Jesus just be one option among many, then Paul wouldn't have felt so pressed to have to engage the, the magician offering a false gospel. It's like, well, that one's just as good as anything else. And so it's just as offensive today as it was back then. Like we, we want, in some sense, universalism to be true, and we are tempted to buy into syncretism. But the gospel calls us to fidelity to clarity about who God is and what God has done to reconcile men and women to himself. Verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Sidia. This is the second one now, right? The one in the north in Turkey. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down after the reading from the law and the prophets. This was customary how they would, Jews would worship in a synagogue. The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. <laughs> so they're sitting there in a worship service. They're in synagogue. And 
<laughs> they hear the law read. Paul's hearing the law. Paul's hearing the prophets. We don't know what was read per se from the Old Testament, but they say, if you've got anything encouraging, um, why don't you just say it? Say it. And so Paul goes, oh, I got an encouraging word for you. I've got a really encouraging word. I'm going to preach to you from the whole Old Testament. <laughs> so that's exactly what we find. It says this in 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, the God of this people, Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. <laughs> I just love that, you know, sometimes God just has to put up with his people. In fact, there's a lot of putting up. I know he has to put up with me, <laughs> but the fact that that's how he described, he put up with them. He put up with them. Thanks be to God. Thank you, God, that he puts up with us. <laughs> and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them as the, gave them their land as an inheritance. This is recalling like the book of Joshua, right? And this all took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, and man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Okay. So he starts to tell the Old Testament story. He goes from the Exodus to Samuel to Saul to King David and says, man, after my own heart, you know, we can easily hold David up and go, that I guess he's a perfect person, man, after my own heart. Doesn't mean that. It means literally a man who chases after. It's a man after God's heart is a person that's chasing what's perfect. The person is not perfect. God's heart is. And it's through David that he raised up the Savior, the Savior, Jesus, the Savior. You might be hearing this, and this might be even your first time tuning in or even hearing the gospel or hearing it in a long time. Do you know you need a Savior? A Savior for your, for your soul? A savior from your sins, a savior from the wrath of God, a savior from judgment, a savior from the consequence of sin, a savior in every sense of the word. And did you know that God gave you one in Jesus? The Matthew's gospel opens with, you will name him Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. There is good news in the gospel today for you. If you want to follow Jesus and trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can. Give him your sin. Place your faith in him. Ask to be filled with the Spirit of God. Let us know we want to rejoice with you and, and help you get connected to the local church. God sent a Savior as he promised. You need to mark that too. Did you know that Jesus is the promise of God? 
Then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you get the first gospel. I will crush the serpent's head, and as his heel comes down, he will bruise my heel, but I will crush his head. What's going on there? He said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send my son. I'm going to be wounded in the process of redeeming you. He's pointing to the cross. God made a promise and God came through on that promise. If you need to know or are challenged right now, is God going to keep his promises to me? The answer is absolutely he's going to keep his promise to you. Our God is a promise-keeping God. And throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers, all the way through to Malachi, God keeps whispering in the ears of the prophets, of the judges, of the kings, of the men and the women who are faithful to him, saying, I'm sending my son. And for 1,400 years, God was reassuring his people through the covenants, through the law, through the, through, through the, through miracle after miracle, through moment of deliverance after deliverance, word after word. I'm going to come through. And on, on 1,400 years after that, God sent his son, born of the Virgin Mary, <laughs> to live a sinless life, to die in our place for our sins and to be raised from the dead. God kept and God keeps his promises. Amen. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, one after me is coming. The, the one whose sandals I, I'm unworthy to untie. <laughs> Brothers, Sons of the family of Abraham, and among those who hear, who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, Jesus was not guilty when he died. They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, all the scourging, all the mocking, 30 pieces of silver, all, all of the shame, all prophesied down to the penny in the Old Testament, all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree. If you mark your Bible, the tree is always a place of a curse. Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. There's a curse that happened in the death of Jesus. He absorbed certainly man's wrath, but he fell beneath the very curse of God. That's, that's what's being communicated in Paul's language here. They took him down from the tree. They laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. <laughs> I know you, if you grew up in church, you've heard that every week of your life. But listen, hear it again. God raised Jesus. God raised Jesus from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses. He's talking about the disciples who are now apostles to the people. And, and we bring you, here's the gospel, good news that what God promised to the fathers, he is fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, 
as it's also written in the second Psalm, you are my son today. I've begotten you. God delighting in his son. And that's for the fact that he raised him from the dead for the fact, mind you, mark that it's a fact. The resurrection is not speculation or a hope or a wish or a maybe or a, it'd be nice, but rather the resurrection. It's a fact. I've seen him with my own two eyes. Right. This is what they're they're appealing to. He had fish on the beach. They've examined him again and again. He appeared to 500 witnesses. This isn't a, a hoax. The fact that God resurrected Jesus from the dead. That's what's happened here. Hmm. No more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. Jesus body will never be corrupted again. Church, hear that. Our Savior will never suffer again. Hmm. I will give you the. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. What do you mean? He's not going to be in the grave long. He's borrowing it for the weekend. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. David died. David died and saw corruption. But he whom God, he whom God, raised up, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Forgiveness of sins is not something you hope for, long for, dream about, strive for, try to obey the law more for. No, no, no. Forgiveness of sins is accomplished. It is finished is what Jesus cried out from his cross. It's finished. Forgiveness of sins is now something that can be proclaimed. It's what he said in Luke 24, 47. Go into the nations and proclaim the forgiveness of sins. Christians, that this is what we're given the good news to do to everyone who wrongs from a white lie to murder. We can proclaim forgiveness of sin before God's throne. Why? Because of what God has done by, in, and through, and as the Lord Jesus. That this is what we're called to do, and commanded to do, and instructed to do, and we repeatedly do day by day as we make this part of our mission in life is to go, I want to announce the forgiveness of sins, that there's a savior in heaven who's done all that is necessary to make men and women, boys and girls, right with God. Forgiveness of sin, no longer in debt to God by sin. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is not saying that the law, there's a problem with the law, that the law is somehow a failure or lacking in any way. The law is beautiful. The law is perfect. The law is holy. Jesus delighted in the law. David delighted in the law. Paul tells us, yeah, yeah, but the law can't free you. The law can't free you. The law can only stand over you. At the end of your life, the law The law doesn't reach out in compassion. The law can't atone for your sins. The law is not the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The law does not fulfill the law. The law calls you to a standard that is impossible. And yet Jesus, in his mercy and in his grace, fulfills the law and obtains righteousness before the throne of God and then extends that righteousness to you. 
It's called justification. As you give your sin to him on Good Friday, he gives you his righteousness through the resurrection of the dead. As it says in Romans 4, you are now justified. You belong now in the presence of God because of all that God has done by, in, and through Christ. The gospel is good news for the church. If you've been a Christian for 20 years or five years or 50 years, it's good to hear the good news again, isn't it? And be reminded in a world and a year like this one to hear that there is still, the king is on his throne and he is still moving mightily all throughout his church. If you're not a Christian and you're hearing this message today and you're going, I need the forgiveness of sins. I realize I've fallen short of the glory of God. I realize that I can't reconcile myself to God. I'm, I've been at enmity with him. I need his mercy. I need his grace. I need his forgiveness and compassion. Today is the day of salvation. There's no reason to wait another day and to stand on the sidelines or stand by the fire and merely warm yourself by hearing about the good news, but rather step into the fire, be consumed by the good news of Jesus and the gospel, be reconciled to God. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks again for joining us. If you want more information about our church or would like to come visit us on a Sunday, go to redemptionseattle.com.